Well, last week we were introduced to the book of Esther, two queens, and heard their stories. Now the, the bad guy is introduced to the story. So we're going to start with Esther 3, looking at verses 1 to 10, and then move on to Esther 4, one, verses 1 to 17. Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast pure, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And then let's jump to um, chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly, But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathash, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathash went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, 
which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go to the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Thanks, Simon. Let's keep that passage open. That'd be great. And let's pray, shall we, for God's help as we look at it. Father, thank you again for your word to us. And as we come to look at it now, we pray, Lord, that you might open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might know you better, that we might love you more, and that we might make our stand for the Lord Jesus in this world. For his name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by reading to you uh, a short extract from uh, uh, an article in a magazine produced by Open Doors, which is an organization that works with the persecuted church. You can follow it here on the screen. This is the short extract. The Christian persecution we read about in scripture and history books is not a thing of the past. It still exists. Today, in the 21st century, we are living in a time when persecution against Christian believers is the highest in modern history. According to an in-depth report, persecution is increasing at an alarming rate. Research indicates that every day, 11 Christian believers are killed for their faith. And that means statistically, by the time you sit down, maybe for lunch this afternoon... Two more Christian believers will have been executed for their faith. But of course, as we learn in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. That's the way it's been, is it not, throughout human history. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, there has been this, this innate, inbuilt hostility towards God, towards his purposes, and towards his people. It's there throughout the whole storyline of the Bible, simmering away beneath the surface. But as we know, there are certain moments when that hostility raises its ugly head in very significant ways. And we come to one of those moments now in Esther chapter 3 and 4. And it's probably worth saying from the outset that as we think about opposition then in Persia and what it was like there, 
And as we begin to think about opposition today for us in our context in 21st century Britain, we need to ask ourselves the same question that no doubt Esther was asking herself. Will I hide or will I stand? In the face of growing opposition and persecution, will I take cover or will I contend for the faith? Last week we looked at the story of of two queens, the fall of Queen Vashti and the rise of Queen Esther. And for those of you who were here, you may remember that these were a couple of dark chapters. This was a, a not a very nice scene to be a part of. A scene full of, of drunkenness and sexual immorality, of, of abuse of power. A world, as we said, not too dissimilar from ours today. But through it all, we saw the sovereign hand of God at work, moving Esther to her royal position for such a time as this. And that's the big lesson, as we said, that we need to learn from the book of Esther. However intense the opposition may get, however broken society may be, however absent God may feel, he is in fact very present, quietly at work, behind the scenes, preserving his people for his glory. Last week we had the story of two queens. This week we have the story of two plots. A plot to assassinate King Xerxes and a plot to annihilate the people of God. Have a look back if you were at chapter uh, 2 verse 21. We didn't read this out so let me read it uh, to you now. Verse 21 of chapter 2. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. We're not told what their motive is, but for whatever reason, these two bodyguards have had enough. And so they get together, they conspire, they, they plan, they plot to assassinate the king. But as we read in verse 22, Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. You see, God hasn't only moved Esther into position. He's also moved Mordecai into position as well. Mordecai just happened in God's providence to be at the king's gates. He just happened in God's providence to overhear this plot to assassinate the king. And he told Esther, who just happened to be queen now of Persia. And the result of all these divine coincidences, well, the plot was foiled. Verse 23, and when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. And that little reference there to these things being written down and recorded will become ever so important in chapter 6. Crucial, in fact, to Mordecai and to the preservation of God's people. Firstly, we have a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. And secondly, we have a plot to annihilate the Jews. Have a look down at chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, the ones we just thought about then, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. It's not what we're expecting, is it? 
after we've just heard about Mordecai and and Mordecai saving the life of the king, it should be Mordecai who's being honoured, should it not? But instead, Haman is elevated to the top seat at the king's table. And it's here that we that we smell the first sign of real trouble with the description we have of Haman in verse 1. Haman, we learn, was an Agagite. Now, the Agagites were descended from King Agag. King Agag was king of the Amalekites at the time when Saul was on the throne in Israel. And for those of you who know your Bible history, the Amalekites were also the first nation to oppose God's people when they came out of Egypt. You see, all through the Bible, there has been this underlying hostility between the Agagites and the Israelites. And it's a hostility that is about to resurface again, verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Now, I don't think this was an issue of bowing down before a false god, like it was for Daniel's friends in Babylon. Kneeling here is, is is a mark of respect. It's like what we would do if we appeared before our queen today. We would bow or we would curtsy. The reason Mordecai does not kneel is because of this underlying hostility between these two nations, the Amalekites and the Israelites. And it's no surprise, is it, how proud Haman reacts in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel, everyone else is kneeling before him, not Mordecai. And when he sees this, he was enraged. Yet, verse 6, having learned who Mordecai's people were. Do you hear that? Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. You see, Haman's anger initially is directed just at Mordecai for not kneeling. But the moment he finds out, the moment he finds out to which people Mordecai belongs, then Haman's anger is redirected towards the whole nation. And so what we have before us is no longer the assassination of one man, but the annihilation of a whole nation. And remember, that would have included all of God's people who've returned to Jerusalem. Joshua, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, the waves of God's people that returned to rebuild their city and their temple and their lives, all of them scattered throughout the 127 provinces, wiped out in one moment. All Haman needs to do now is set the date. And so he rolls the dice in verse 7 to find out when this will take place. In the 12th year of King Xerxes... In the first month of Nisan, the pure, that is the lot, the dice, if you like, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month for all this to take place. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. And so the date's been set. It's in the diary. You know, when you've got a date looming in the diary and it's a date that you dread, maybe it's an exam. Maybe it's an operation, maybe it's a funeral. Well, imagine living as a Jew 
with this date looming in your diary, this date written on your kitchen calendar, the 3rd of the 12th, 474 BC. And scribbled underneath that date, these words, destruction of every living Jew. All Haman needs to do now is to persuade the king, which he does in verse 8 and 9 with a mixture of lies and bribery. And so the plan is put into action in verse 12. The secretaries are summoned together and this script, this edict is written. It's translated into all the different languages ready to go out and it is sealed with the signet ring of the king. Xerxes has just authorized with his own signet ring the full genocide of God's people. You see, if last week was dark with sexual immorality, this week is dark and brutally barbaric. Look at verse 13. These dispatches are sent out with this edict by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. But if it's possible, there's something even more chilling at the end of verse 15. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. City still trying to catch its breath as the news filters out this, this horrible event that's going to happen. And while this is going on, Haman and Xerxes sit down to celebrate, to toast a good day's work. No regrets, no remorse, just pure hatred and evil directed towards the people of God. And you see, at times, it's not actually much different today, is it? As Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. If we follow Jesus, if we uphold the teaching of the Lord Jesus, if we center our lives on Jesus, we will receive flack. Paul warns us, Jesus warns us, Esther warns us, the whole Bible warns us. What will that look like in the years to come? What will that mean for our children? What will it mean for our children's children? I don't know exactly what it will mean. But this I do know. The opposition that we find in the book of Esther is both ancient and contemporary. It was real then and it's real today. It may manifest itself in different ways at different times in other countries around this world. It may mean execution this very day. For us, it may not. The question, though, is a simple one for us this morning. When opposition and persecution does come our way, whatever that looks like in the future, if things get ever so difficult for being a Christian in this world, here's the question we need to ask ourselves now and then. Will we hide or will we stand? Will we take cover Or will we contend for the faith? You see, these are some of the darkest chapters, I think, in the Bible. Yet even in and amongst the darkness, the light of God's grace is still present. Have a look back at verse 12 and take note of the dates. 
Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. Now, if you know your Hebrew calendar, you'll be aware that that's the day before Passover. Meaning that for many Jews scattered across these different provinces, this terrible news would have landed on their doorstep on the day of their biggest celebration. A day then where they remembered God's great salvation, his deliverance, his mighty acts of deliverance from Egypt. I wonder what they're thinking in their heads. The news comes and they've got this historical day in their minds. God's done it before. Is he going to do it again? Just like he did in Egypt, will God once again deliver his people from this terrible plight? You see, the name of God may be absent in this story, but the grace of God is present in the smallest details. And so as we pick up the story now in chapter 4, we're presented with one of the great contrasts in this book. The end of chapter 3, Haman and Xerxes sit down to toast the annihilation of God's people. And the start of chapter 4, Mordecai and his people are wailing in distress. I look at verse 3, you see the contrast there on the screen. In every province, province sorry, to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Haman and Xerxes are toasting and feasting and drinking and the people of God are wailing and fasting and weeping. Everywhere you look, the sound of crying filled the streets. Yet while all that's happening out there, you can imagine the noise and the confusion. That's all happening out there. But at the same time, it seems like Esther, within the bubble of the palace, is oblivious to these things. She's informed of Mordecai's grief in verse 4, but she doesn't know what's caused it yet in verse 5. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered her to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. And so Hathak, being the good attendant that he is, goes out to find Mordecai. And when he does, Mordecai has three things to pass on back to Esther. Number one, he tells him everything that's happened. Pass this on. This is what's happened. Tell Esther what's happened. Number two, he gives them the edict that's been sent out. Please put this in Esther's hand. And number three, he instructs Esther to go before the king and to plead for her people. And it's that last point there that takes us all the way back to chapter 2, verse 20, where we read this. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. You see, Mordecai's previous instructions to Esther was to hide her nationality. Now it's all changed. Now it's the opposite. He says, go. He says, go to the king. Let him know who you are. Let him know who your people are and plead with the king on behalf of your people. And I guess the question we're asking ourselves is, will she go? Until now, 2 verse 20, Esther has carried out all Mordecai's instructions. But will she listen now? When it matters most, well, the initial reply comes in verse 11. 
all the king's officials, I'll put that picture back up, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. Must be joking, says Esther. If I go in, I'm probably not going to come out. And the dilemma is made even worse at the end of verse 11 where we read this. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go before the king. Now I doubt the king has been sleeping alone for the last month. What's going on here is that Esther is slipping down the priority list of the king. She's no longer got the favor of the king that she had in the past. And this doesn't bode well at this crucial time when she plans to go before him. This then is all reported back to Mordecai who responds with probably the most familiar and important words in this whole book. He, that's Mordecai, sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Three parts, isn't there, to the response? Firstly, Mordecai says to Esther, you can't hide. You may feel safish now, surrounded by all those Persian comforts, but you can't hide forever. You'll get found out, Esther. Secondly, he says rescue will come. Of that you can be sure. Even if you remain silent, Esther, deliverance will come from another place. Mordecai, you see, has a quiet confidence in the promises of God and the covenant of God to keep his people. And thirdly, he says to Esther, maybe God wants to use you. You ever thought about that before? Maybe God wants to use you. Maybe you've come to your royal position, Esther, for such a time as this. Maybe in all the darkness and the desperation of those years that have gone by, God has been quietly at work behind the scenes, putting you in this position now for this very reason. Esther, what are you going to do? You're going to hide beneath your duvet? Take cover? Or are you going to make a stand for your God and for your people? Well, the answer comes back in verse 15 and 16, and what a wonderful answer it is. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. You see, Esther is both wise and brave. She doesn't panic, does she? The first thing she does is pray. It's not explicit in the text, but I think it's assumed. Prayer and fasting almost exclusively go together in God's word. And so Esther pleads, she prays, she fasts before her God, and she calls the people of God to join her. 
But as you can see, it is a wisdom that is matched with bravery because when those three days of petitioning with the Lord are over, verse 16, when this is done, I will go to the king and if I perish, I perish. What we have here is a picture of beautiful bravery. A willingness to identify with God and with his people, whatever the cost for self. And actually, the same call is upon our lives, is it not? The Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 8, you'll know these words. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And so the question for us is this. Will we hide Or will we stand? If you were put on trial tomorrow, like brothers and sisters of ours across the world are, if you were put on trial tomorrow, would you hide? Or would you stand? The Christian faith is being undermined in the playground or in the, in the college yard or wherever it is. Will you hide? Or will you stand? If the name of the Lord Jesus is being mocked and spat on in your workplace, Will you hide or will you stand? Will you be willing to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow your saviour who willingly laid down his life on the cross for you that we might know him and that we might know life and light and glory and goodness forever? Will we follow in the footsteps of Esther and make our stand For the Lord Jesus in the places that he has put us in. As we draw things to a close, I want to make one more comment on verse 14. Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now I'm aware that these words were spoken firstly to Esther, but can I say they are equally true for you. God has put you... He's put you in the position you are in right now for a reason. In your family, he's put you there. In your streets, he has put you there. In your school or college, he has put you there. In your workplace, he has put you there. There are no coincidences in life. We've seen that, haven't we, in the book of Esther. God is moving his people around. And those people around you in your life are there by God's divine appointment. It's no coincidence you live next to the same person for 23 years. It's no coincidence that you have that coffee break every day at the same time with the same person. It's no coincidence that your family are your family. God has put them in your life for a reason. That you might pray for them. And that you might show them the Lord Jesus. And that however hard life may get as a Christian in the decades to come. 
as the freeze of apathy maybe becomes the fires of persecution in our land, however difficult things might get, will you make your stand for Jesus, knowing that he loves you and he's put you there for a reason? And whatever people make of my name and your name, oh, that they would exalt the name of the Lord Jesus because of all that he has done for you and for me. Will you hide or will you stand for the Lord Jesus tomorrow, next week, next year, and for however many days the Lord gives us in this world? Shall I pray for us? As I do, the band can come to the front because they're going to lead us in song. Great is the darkness that covers the earth. Oppression, injustice and pain. Nations are slipping in hopeless despair, though many have come in your name. Father in heaven, how we pray that you would come upon your people in power once again. Lord, that you would come upon this church, that you would be at work in our hearts and our lives, that we would be individuals, that we would be a collective church that makes it stand for the Lord Jesus, that proclaims the gospel to the very ends of this earth, whatever it means for me, whatever it means for us. And Lord, we pray and we ask that as we make our stand in this world, in those little worlds that you've caused us to be in, to walk in, to live in, Lord, help us to remember that you've put us in those worlds for a reason. That we might pray for those around us. And that we might show them the Lord Jesus, that they too might turn to him and be saved. Lord, how we pray this, for the good of those yet to know you, and for the glory of your name. Amen.